This morning we're picking up our epic series. We had a break from it last week for Father's Day, uh, but we're about halfway through, or a little bit over halfway through actually, walking through God's big epic story and being able to understand this story that unfolds throughout the pages of Scripture and what it means for us about our sense of identity and our sense of purpose. So a little bit of a recap because it was a little while ago that we started this. Here's what we've covered so far. We've looked at four of the seven episodes and we started month and a bit ago with episode one which is called designed recognizing that we were created for a purpose that we were created to live in a relationship with god in a healthy relationship with the people around us and to live at peace with the world that god had created and so that was the picture that we had of what original creation looked like this sense of intimacy this sense of closeness this sense of having nothing to hide which we articulated with that word peace life the way that it's supposed to be That's what God's original design was. However, the next week we then talked about how we had a choice to make, embracing God's way of life or saying thanks but no thanks and walking away from God's best. And we chose to say thanks but no thanks and to walk away from God's original design. And because of that, we had episode two, which is called Broken, recognising that when we choose selfishness, when we choose to walk away from God's best, that inevitably brings brokenness into our, into our lives. It brings brokenness into our relationship with God, brokenness into our relationships with each other, and also brokenness in our relationship with the world. But we recognise that God didn't give up at that point. Even though we walked away from him, he didn't just say, well, I'm done with all of you. Instead, we looked at episode three, which is called Expectant where God chose a group of people called the Israelites to walk with them to help them understand what this original design was all about, to be able to understand what it looked like to live in a healthy relationship with him, with each other, and with the creation around them. But the journey of the Old Testament we discovered is this story of a group of people continually saying thanks but no thanks to God's best and instead chasing after things like laws. And so we talked about how they would pursue people saying, give us the rules. If you just tell us what we have to do and not do, everything will be fine. Or chasing after land. If we can just get ourselves into the right environment, if we can just get to the promised land, then everything will be really, really great. Or chasing after leaders. If you just give us someone who will tell us what to do and how to live our lives, someone who can lead us forward, then everything will be great. But we discovered that even though they got all of those things, all of them fell well short of what God's best was. But through the journey of the Old Testament, we also see this growing sense of expectation that at just the right time, this person was going to come along who was called the Messiah, the Saviour, the Rescuer, the one who was going to set things right once and for all and restore the original design, the original relationship that was supposed to be there in our relationship with God. And so two weeks ago, we looked at episode four, which is called Presence, where we recognise that we're not alone, that Jesus coming to earth uh, is a sign of us understanding what God is like, that Jesus comes to show us the fullness of God. But Jesus also comes to show us how to live, how to live lives that are by the original design, and also that Jesus came to set us free, to once and for all set us free from all the things that hold us back because of the brokenness that we experience. And so if you've forgotten about any of those, if you want a refresher on any of those, if you've missed any of those, uh, you can listen to them on our website, our Facebook page, or if you're a podcast person, uh, then you can subscribe to that and you'll get them every week. So this week we're up to episode five, which is called Satisfied. And so the summary of what we're going to talk about today is that we don't have to strive. 
Because of what Jesus has done for us, in particular through his death and resurrection, we are now in a position where everything has been satisfied. Everything's been done that's necessary for us to have that full, complete relationship with God. So our lives are no longer about striving. This craving that we have for things to be made right, dealing with the brokenness once and for all, that has happened. And so now we don't have to try and do things ourselves. We simply live out of what has been done for us. So today we're going to look at a lot of scripture because throughout the Bible, and particularly throughout the New Testament, one of the things that you can't read before very long you discover is that through Jesus' death and resurrection, we believe that everything that's necessary has been done for us to have a full and complete relationship with God and to make up for all the mistakes of humanity, all of the brokenness, all of the pain, all of the suffering, all of that has been dealt with through Jesus. So we're going to look at a bunch of different readings, and there are plenty more. My encouragement to you, because these are all listed on your teaching notes, is to have a look at these throughout the week. So it might be something that each day you choose to look at one or two of these and just spend a bit more time reflecting on them, because there's a lot in what we're going to have a look at. So Romans chapter 3 Verses 21 to 24 says, Now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We're made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. And yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. A couple of chapters later, in Romans chapter 5, we read that God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right by God's, in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 to 7, says God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He's so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18 to 20 says, For God in all his, his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. A couple more. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says, Christ died for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. And then 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, says, Christ himself is the means by which our sins are forgiven, and not our sins only, but also the sins of everyone. So over and over and over and over again, throughout the pages of the New Testament, we read this understanding that because of Jesus' death, because of Jesus' death on the cross, because of Jesus' blood that's poured out for us, something has changed. Our relationship with God has been restored. Everything has been made right. It's finished. It's complete. And God didn't do this resentfully. He did it out of a sense of love. He did it because it was his great pleasure to restore that relationship to us. So the big question that we often wrestle with when we talk about all of this stuff, and particularly people who haven't necessarily grown up in the church, the big question that comes up is to say, 
Well, why did Jesus have to die in order for that to happen? Wasn't there some other way that God could have achieved this plan? Like if God was so passionate about us being restored to a full relationship with him, isn't there some other way? Or if God's so gracious and so kind, couldn't he have just said, oh, well, never mind, you're all forgiven, it doesn't matter, let's just let it go and pretend that it never happened. It's kind of this wrestling that we have. Why is it that someone had to die in order for all of these things to happen? So we're going to unpack that a little bit as we go through today. We want to start by recognising that all of us have this yearning inside of us for justice, especially when someone gets hurt. So if someone kills someone else, our natural reaction is that justice needs to be served. Someone needs to pay for what they've done to someone else. Or if a child is abused in one way or another, as we've seen a lot in the media recently, there is this massive outpouring this sense that justice needs to be served. That's not okay, and so that person needs to pay for what they've done. The challenge is to say, how far back do we go before justice doesn't need to be served? So, yes, if someone kills someone, yes, if someone does something to a kid, but what if somebody breaks someone else's arm? Does justice need to be served there? What if someone abuses someone else emotionally? Someone says really, really horrible things to someone, and especially if they do that consistently, does justice need to be served there? What about if someone says something about someone else behind their back? So that person doesn't actually know that something's been said, but those words have been spoken. Does justice need to be served there? And what about if we just think something negative about someone else? Does justice need to be served there? Nothing's been said, nothing's been done. But does justice need to be served? It's a challenge for us to say, well, how far back does justice go? And for us to really get our heads around it, we have to come back to this word sin. Recognise that sin, as we've talked about a lot, is missing the mark. It's imagining that there's a bullseye and shooting for that bullseye. And any time we miss the bullseye is what sin is called, missing the mark. And the bullseye that we're aiming for is what God is like which is loving perfectly 100% of the time. Loving perfectly 100% of the time. Any time that we don't do that, that's not what God's standard is because God never thinks a negative thought about someone. God never says something about someone behind their back, let alone all of the other things that we've unpacked. So for God, the standard of justice is loving perfectly 100% of the time. And so any time that doesn't happen, justice does need to be served in his eyes. And so in episode three, which we called Expectant, we talked about the journey of the Israelites. We talked about the sacrificial system that was introduced as a way of allowing justice to be served for all of those things, all of those areas where we fall short in our lives. To help us understand the consequences of selfishness, the consequences of brokenness, the consequences of what happens when we don't love other people perfectly, this sacrificial system was introduced where you, if you made a mistake, if you did something wrong, if you hurt someone else, you would go to the temple and you would see a priest and you would say what you'd done and that priest would then say, okay, this is the sacrifice that you need to make in order to make up for what you have done. And so you would be told that there was a bird or an animal that needed to be killed and so you would buy that bird or that animal and then it would be killed on the altar Its blood would be shed and poured out. So this seems kind of graphic and horrific to us. So why on earth introduce a sacrificial system? 
Well, part of it is that it's a really, really helpful reminder to us that ultimately the consequences of selfishness and brokenness is death. If we take selfishness to its end, it always results in death. The end result of brokenness, all of the time if we go far enough, is always death. So a sacrifice reminds us that there's death that comes with brokenness. The idea of blood being poured out is a helpful reminder as well because blood is our life force. We know that if we don't have blood in our bodies, then we die. We also know that if our blood gets infected, then it affects every part of who we are. And so blood is this beautiful symbol of life. And so sacrificially what's happening is that blood is being poured out You can literally see the life seeping away and death coming to replace that. That's the end result of brokenness. But it's not just this really harsh, see, look how bad it is what you've done, look at it. Can't you see how bad this all is? It's also a reminder that that means the price has been paid. The cost has been dealt with. You can see that this is now finished. So you are forgiven, the relationship is restored, and so you can move forward. That's the reason that the sacrificial system was brought in. We can think about it another way, because sacrificial system is kind of a bit weird for us, so let's think about it a bit more practically. If I crash my car into someone else's fence, then there's a cost that's involved in that. There's a cost that's involved to fix the fence, and there's a cost that's involved to fix my car. So there's a payment that needs to be made, and that can happen a number of ways. I, as a person who's responsible for the damage, probably am going to have to pay for the fence and the car. So I might have to shoulder the payment. Even if I have insurance, I'm still paying because I've paid my insurance premiums and then the insurance company is paying as well. So there's a payment there. Now, it may be that the other person is super, super generous and they say, well, I know that it was just a mistake. It's okay. I'm going to pay for the damage, which would be staggering if they did that. But the payment is still being made. Or we might split the cost 50-50, but still there's a cost that's involved. So if something gets damaged physically, we know that there's a cost involved. If someone hurts someone else, so we'll go back to the example, if someone breaks someone else's arm, then there is cost that's involved in that as well. There's hospital bills that need to be paid, rehab bills that need to be paid. Plus there's the cost of that person missing out on work, missing out on life, missing out on doing a whole bunch of the things that they love to do. So there's a cost that's involved in that. If we think about someone emotionally hurting someone else, there's a cost involved in that too. It's just not a financial cost. So if someone says something horrible about someone else, someone attacks someone else's sense of self-esteem, someone pulls down someone's reputation, someone steals someone else's joy or peace, then there's a cost that is going to be paid there. Because this person has done this to me, And so I now have a choice about how I react. It may be that I lash out in return. So they've said something horrible to me, so the cost is I'm going to say something horrible back to them. I'm going to lash out in anger at them. So that's the cost that has been paid. Or I might choose to go the other way and say I'm going to give that person the silent treatment. I'm going to ignore them, I'm going to pretend that they don't exist, and I'm going to show them that way. But there's a cost that's involved in that as well. And the problem is that that actually only increases the brokenness. Now our relationship is even more fractured because probably that other person's now going to respond and that's going to go up and up and the cost is actually going to increase in a significant way. Or I can make another choice. 
I can choose to forgive that person for what they have said about me or for what they've done to me. But that costs as well. That costs me a lot to choose to say, I'm going to let that go. I'm going to choose to forgive that person. I'm going to choose not to react, not to do something in return. That costs me as well. So any time that there's selfishness that leads to brokenness, there is always a cost that's involved. There's always a payment that needs to be made. So coming back to the question then about why Jesus needed to die, kind of diverted around a little bit, but come back to this question, why did Jesus need to die? What I want you to do is to try and think about all of the mistakes that you've ever made in your life. Nice simple task for you. (laughs) Think about all of the times that you've hurt other people intentionally or unintentionally, all of the times that you have broken relationships, all of the times that you've broken things physically, all of the times that damage has been caused in your life. Now I want you to think about all the people that you're close to. Think about your family or your friends and think about all of that collectively, all of the brokenness and all the damage that's been caused by the people that you know. Think about all of us as a church family and all of the mistakes we've made, all the brokenness that we've caused, all of the times that we haven't loved perfectly. Pile all of that up together. Now let's blow that out even further and think about all of the people in Adelaide, one and a half million people, all of the brokenness, all of the damage, all of the hurt, all of the pain, all of the suffering. Blow that out further to everyone in Australia, 26 million people all the brokenness, all the pain, all the hurt, all the suffering. The whole world, six billion people, everyone globally, and all of the pain and damage that's been caused by each of those people. Now blow that out to eternity. Since the beginning of time, through to what's going to happen, through to the end of time, all of that brokenness, all of that mess, all of that pain, all of that suffering, pile that on top of each other, And think about the amount of justice that needs to be served to deal with all of that. Think about the payment that's required for all of that to be dealt with once and for all. It seems too much, doesn't it? That's crazy. How is it possible that something could deal with all of that once and for all? That's what we believe that Jesus has done. And we believe that Jesus is the only one who's able to do that because Jesus comes as God himself to deal with this problem once and for all. Jesus comes as a perfect person who has never made a mistake, never caused any brokenness, never acted with selfish motives, who is able to make that payment, able to be that sacrifice on our behalf, dealing with everything once and for all. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 to 15 puts it this way. This is from the message translation. When the Messiah arrived, high priest of the superior things of this new covenant, he bypassed the the old tent and its trappings in this created world and went straight into heaven's tent, the true holy place, once and for all. Let's just pause there for a moment because there's just a little bit of content in what we've just read. So the Messiah arrives, the Saviour, the Rescuer that we've talked about was expected to come, this person named Jesus. He comes as the high priest. So again, the priest is the one in the temple who makes sacrifices on behalf of other people. But he comes as the high priest of the superior things of the new covenant. 
the new relationship. We talked about how a covenant is an agreement between two parties to work together towards peace and to live at peace with each other. We talked about that in terms of the old covenant that God made with the Israelites. Jesus comes to bring a new covenant, a new relationship, a new agreement. And in doing so, he bypassed the old tent and its trappings. So in the Old Testament, the Israelites, especially when they were wandering around in the wilderness, had a tent that was set up as the temple. That's where the priest would be, and that's where you would go to make sacrifices. So there's this tent that would have been very vivid, vivid imagery for the people that this is being written to. He bypasses that old tent, we're told, and instead goes into heaven's tent, in inverted commas, the true holy place once and for all. So Jesus effectively goes into the holiest place possible, into heaven itself, the temple of heaven, as the high priest, as the Messiah. He also bypassed the sacrifices consisting of goat and calf blood, instead using his own blood as the price to set us free once and for all. If that animal blood and the other rituals of purification were effective in cleaning up certain matters of our religion and behaviour, think how much more the blood of Christ cleans up our whole lives inside and out. So if the blood of a goat or a calf is able to deal with our mistakes, deal with some of our brokenness from a religious perspective, how much more can the blood of Jesus, the blood of God himself, come as a perfect sacrifice Deal not just with a couple of bits and pieces where we've messed up, but deal with things once and for all, from the inside out, everything, everywhere. Through the Spirit, Christ offered himself as an unblemished sacrifice, freeing us from all those dead efforts, dead end efforts, to make ourselves respectable so that we can live all out for God. So Jesus comes as the final sacrifice to do away with the sacrificial system, to say, no more do you have to make sacrifices to go through all of that. I have dealt with it once and for all. So one of the questions that people then ask as we talk about this and kind of wrestle with it is, well, okay, so even if I'm willing to accept this sacrificial system and the idea of that, and even if I'm willing to accept that Jesus came and died to end that sacrificial system, it still seems really harsh that God sent someone else to do his dirty work. You may have heard that question from people. It's one of the big things that people often wrestle with. If God is so loving, how could he possibly send his son to die for everyone else? That seems very, very harsh and very unfair. I thought God was supposed to be a God of love. What we have to understand here is that God didn't send someone else. God came as Jesus. God himself is the one who comes and makes this sacrifice on our behalf. God doesn't say, okay, who else can go and sort this out? You can. God says, I'm going to come and I'm going to deal with this once and for all. And he does that in the person of Jesus. Arguments about God being this evil person who sends someone else miss the whole point that Jesus, in our understanding, is God himself. He doesn't say someone else needs to sort it out. He says, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to restore what my original plan always was and I'm going to do it by coming as Jesus. But we also have to recognise that Jesus didn't do this because he was forced to. Jesus did this willingly. In John chapter 15, the verses that we read earlier, 
we read. So this is Jesus spending time with his disciples on the night before he dies. And so in the couple of chapters before this in John, Jesus has been unpacking a whole bunch of things that the disciples need to hold on to. And so after saying this, he looked up to heaven and he prayed. He said, Father, the hour has come. Give glory to your son so that the son may give glory to you. For you gave him authority over all people so that he might give eternal life to all those you gave him. And eternal life means to know you, the only true God, and to know Jesus Christ, whom you sent. I have shown your glory on earth. I've finished the work you gave me to do. Father, give me glory in your presence now, the same glory I had with you before the world was made. So here we're reminded again that this was the plan before the creation of the world, which we talked about in the first week. Jesus has always existed. Jesus always knew that this day was going to come. And so Jesus says, God, I have come. Father, I have shown them what you're like. I've shown them by showing you, showing them who you are, by showing them how to live, by setting people free, by healing people, bringing wholeness into their lives. But now it's time. Now it's time to show them what you're really like, to show your full glory, to show just how amazing you really are. Everything has been done that's necessary. So now let's let this course run out the way that it needs to. But it doesn't mean that it wasn't hard on him. We know that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Looking at it from Mark's version, in Mark chapter 14, the disciples all went to the olive grove called Gethsemane. And Jesus said, sit here while I go and pray. He took Peter, James and John, three of his closest friends with him, and he became deeply troubled and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little further and he fell to the ground. He prayed that if it was possible, the awful hour awaiting him might pass him by. Abba, Father, he cried out, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. And so Jesus comes and recognises what's about to happen. He knows the sense of suffering, the pain, the weight that he's about to take on himself. And he says, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, God, that this can work out so that your original design can happen, so that this restoration can happen, let's go down that road now because I really don't want to face what's ahead of me. But ultimately he says, yet not what I want, but what you want. Not my will, but yours. Jesus resigns himself to say, this is the only way for this to be fixed. This is the only way to restore the brokenness. So if that's what it takes, I'm going to go ahead and do it. And so he walks through his arrest, through everything that unfolds from there, and ultimately walks all the way to the cross. And in John chapter 19, while Jesus is hanging on the cross, we read these words in verse 28. Jesus knew that by now everything had been completed. And in order to make the scripture come true, he said, I'm thirsty. A bowl was there full of cheap wine, so a sponge was soaked in wine, put on a stalk of hyssop and lifted up to his lips. Jesus drank the wine and said, it is finished. And he bowed his head. And he gave up his spirit. For Jesus, it's clear that he knows it's done. 
it's finished. Everything is complete. Everything is satisfied. Everything that needed to happen has happened. His death on the cross, his blood being poured out, finishes it all. There are no more sacrifices that need to be made. There's nothing else that needs to be done to make up for the brokenness and the mistakes and the selfishness that we all do. There is now a new covenant in place, a new relationship, a new agreement about what it looks like to live at peace with God. Peace the way life was always supposed to be. Peace, whole relationships, complete relationships with God and the opportunity for us now to live our lives that way. And so now there's nothing for us to do except say thank you. To open ourselves up and say thank you that you would be willing to make a sacrifice like this for me, for us. And that you would do that for no other reason than because you love us. Because all you have wanted since the very beginning is a relationship with us. That's it. Pure and simple. So as we wrap up our message, get ready to transition into communion, I want to use the same question that we've been using throughout this whole series. How does God's story shape my identity and my sense of purpose? If it's true that Jesus has done everything that's necessary for me to have a full, complete relationship with God, how much am I allowing that to shape my sense of identity, who I am, and my purpose, my sense of knowing why I'm here? Is my focus and my identity grounded in this understanding that there is now nothing else that I need to do in order to have a full, complete relationship with God? Or do I spend all my time trying to earn something that has already been given? And this is the major difference between Christianity and every other belief system, and it can be summed up with two very simple words. Do and done. Do and done. Every other belief system is about what I have to do I have to do enough. I have to make sure that I've done enough to be able to get to a place where I have made myself right with God, where I've been accepted, whatever it might look like, or where I've reached enlightenment, I've let enough go. Whatever it is, it's about what I do. I have to do all these things, and so I spend my whole life working towards that. Christianity is the only belief system that's about what's being done. It's finished, it's complete, it's satisfied. Everything that's necessary has been done for us. And so now we get to live out of the freedom that comes from that. So to help us reflect on this as we head into this week, this is the question that I would like us to think about. What am I striving for? What am I striving for? And there's two ways that we can think about that question. What am I striving for in terms of what things am I striving for? But also, why am I striving? What am I striving for? What's the point in me striving? I want us to try and think about both of those things. Do I get up every day striving to try and prove myself to God? If I can just do enough today, if I can just be good enough today, then maybe God will accept me, maybe God will love me. If I just sacrifice enough today, if I just give enough up for God, then maybe he'll accept me, maybe he'll love me. What am I striving for in my relationship with God? Or am I maybe striving to try and find satisfaction in other things? 
Am I striving to say, if I can just earn enough money, if I can just get to this point in my life where I have enough security, then everything will be okay. If I can just find myself in a relationship, if I can just prove myself to other people by getting good enough grades or being able to win that award or getting that promotion, if I can just do enough, if I can just strive enough, then I'll feel a sense of satisfaction about what life is all about. The challenge is, what happens on the other side of that? If we achieve these things that we're striving for, if I just do get to that, that next level of financial security, if I do manage to get myself into a relationship, if I do manage to get those grades, if I do manage to get myself that promotion, if I do manage to win that award, whatever it is that I'm striving for, what happens at that point? The challenge is we realise actually not much has changed at all and now there's something else to strive for and something else and something else. Ultimately, none of those things satisfy us. So what am I striving for? Why am I striving? What are the things that I'm chasing after? Because what God wants us to understand is there's no point in doing those things. All we need to do is get up every day and live in the freedom that comes from knowing that we are loved, we're embraced, we're accepted. No matter what we do, no matter what we don't do, no matter the mistakes that we make, no matter the times that we mess up and hurt other people, we are loved and accepted and forgiven. And all of that is guaranteed, not because we do enough, not because we get ourselves together enough, but simply because of what Jesus has done for us. And so as we continue to find ourselves in God's story, this is really the pivot point where everything shifts. All of a sudden, we do understand what our identity is about. We do understand what our sense of purpose is about. And all the stuff that we're going to talk about next week when we get into understanding what it looks like to live the story out all comes from this point. It's not about us striving. It's about us accepting what has been done for us. So I'm going to pray. And as we head into this week, we can continue to understand just how staggering that is, what has been done for us. And we can understand the implications of Jesus' sacrifice for us, but that we can then feel motivated and encouraged and inspired about what it looks like to live out of the freedom that has been paid for us. The cost has been paid. It's finished. It's over. And now we get to live the way we were always created to live. Let's pray. Jesus, this is the core of what we believe, that you came to show us what God's like, that you came to show us how to live. But over all of that, you came ultimately to set us free, to once and for all pay the price that's necessary to deal with all of the brokenness in the world. All of those times that we make selfish decisions, all of those times that we make decisions that are motivated by anything other than others-centred love, you have come to deal with that once and for all. It's staggering to think about your willingness to come and do that. And that you didn't do that begrudgingly, you didn't do it because you were forced to, you did it because all you've ever wanted for us is to experience the love of the Father, the love that you have known since before the creation of the world. 
God, your desire for us is always just to be in a relationship with you and then to live out of that in our relationships with other people, to live at peace. It's all you've ever wanted for us. And so you're willing to come and pay whatever price is necessary to satisfy that, to allow justice to be served, to once and for all deal with the sacrificial system so that there's no need anymore. We simply look back to what you have done for us, Jesus, and we live out of that sense of freedom, that sense of purpose. So I pray that you would continue to challenge us about the things that we strive for in our lives, the things that I strive for in my life. So often we get up every day with all of these things that we chase after, trying to prove ourselves to you, trying to prove ourselves to other people, trying to think that if we can just get this, then everything will be great. When all you want us to be able to do is get up every day and understand that we are loved and accepted and embraced by the creator of the universe. And so I pray that as we head into this week, in those areas where we are striving, you would challenge us about what's really driving that, what's really motivating that, that you would help us to be able to unpack those things, untangle those things, and instead find our way to the peace and the freedom that only you can offer. In your name we pray. Amen.